One of our chief goals is to demonstrate where do you get your electricity from? Most people don't think about that. And it's something that we should all think about. You know, how does electricity work and where does it come from? And so that's a very basic demonstration of what we do when people of all ages tour the home. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition hosted by Smart Energy Decisions' own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm your host, Deborah Channel, and today we have our second installment of our series celebrating the winners of our 2023 DEI Impact Awards. These were held at the Net Zero Forum Fall Edition. The 2023 DEI Impact Awards were sponsored by NRG, and they recognize the company-wide efforts of large power users who are advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion, all while powering the energy transition. Today, we're highlighting the work of three winners, Sandeep Blah, Project Manager for the Clean Energy Jobs Program at PSENG, Bambi Ingram, Sustainability Director at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Ashif Hassan, Corporate Partnerships Manager at the Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership, and he'll be accompanied by his co-worker, Scott Gerba, who's COO of City College of New York. And a quick note, you'll hear a different interviewer in a few of these conversations, and that's our producer, Maria Faella, who conducted several interviews live at the event. Let's begin with Sandeep Blah. So I'm here with Sandeep Blah, and she is a winner of a partnership award for the PSCNG Clean Energy Jobs Program. So I want to start by asking her to tell us about this winning project and what this program is about. All right. So the Clean Energy Jobs Program by PSCNG started in 2021 with the primary objective to create economic opportunities for up to 2,000 low middle income New Jersey residents. And the way we intended to do it was by basically focusing on three primary pillars of the jobs program. It's training, recruiting, and diversity. So when it comes to training, our focus has been providing training opportunity to our jobs, which are on highest demand. We have provided course curriculum to help people get the skills to create pipeline of candidates, essentially who will feed into our recruiting pathways to get these positions. When it comes to diversity, we have been actively measuring on what is the demographic makeup of these individuals who are being hired in these jobs. We sponsor MWBBE certification by partnering with two chambers of New Jersey's, which is called African-American Chambers of Commerce and statewide Hispanic Chambers of Commerce. We have trained more than 140 small businesses to receive their certification in this effort. When it comes to recruitment, we work with multiple nonprofit organizations who are spread across in the state of New Jersey. We basically receive their help by when they recruit on PSENG's behalf. In this case, one of the main points that we also want to communicate to all the resources who are looking for the jobs are that PSENG is not the hiring company. We work with multiple vendors who are the hiring companies and we basically sponsor and help you receive these jobs and we help you enhance in your career by providing you the training that we have. Okay. Remember, one of the judges called this 
program, they were really impressed with the audacious scope of the program and what you've just described. I can see why they said that. (laughs) So tell us what's involved in your role as project manager. So as a project manager of Clean Energy Jobs Program, my role basically comes in two folds. I'll call it like an internal support and external support. So internal support is when I basically manage our budget, the budget for the clean energy work, the training. I do the forecasting for the entire year. How much budget do we have? How much training we can get done within this budget and all other community partnerships that we have and how to give them the incentives, which are also covered under the budget as well. Additionally, I also create the scorecard. There's a saying that goes like, you know, what gets measured is what gets managed. So in order to manage this program, we have created many different types of reports. So at the end of every month, I produce a scorecard, which includes our hiring numbers from the inception of the program for this year or for this month. So it has the breakdown of all of that information. And it also includes the demographic information about the hired resources or individuals. So that's my internal support that I do. And then externally is what I basically do is managing our vendors. We work with more than 30 vendors in our program. So contractual commitments, you know, the vendor management, holding them accountable is also part of my job in this role. Okay. And how is it working with those outside partners? How do you make the program effective with their input? So this comes under my external support, right? So basically with all of these vendors, we have contracts which have laid down very straightforward targets, their goals. And basically, we also provide them incentives when they achieve these goals. So part of my job is to educate them about these contracts as well. Especially when we started this program, we used to say, we are flying a plane which is in development. (laughs) So a lot was happening. We were documenting the processes, creating the processes. So a lot of our vendors were not aware of about their own contracts. So part of the vendor management I did was educating them about the contracts. What are all the incentives they can earn? How they can be delivering the reports on the deliverables that they have and then managing them that way. It has not been an easy job. It definitely required relationship building. So I would meet with them on monthly basis, going through the reports, educating them about our program and making them understand about their contracts, their targets, and the deliverables that they have for the program. Okay. And the program, the, something that was really interesting to me, the program involves training and energy efficiency. And something we've been hearing a lot is there is a dwindling pool of employees for this type of work. Is that part of what inspired the program? So basically, when this program was created, and when the training was created, it was created keeping the jobs in mind. So we knew we are targeting the clean energy industry and these are the jobs that we want to fill. So in order to fill those jobs, we identified the gap in the skill set. What are those trainings or certifications these individuals will require in order to fit in these jobs? Because at the end of the day, if you have a degree from a college, you may not still be able to apply for these jobs because these are very technical jobs which may require like certain certifications which you don't get in the college. So the training programs and the curriculum that we created was based on those gaps. How can a new graduated person, right, like a new graduate can get a job in one of these positions if we provide them maybe a BPS certification, maybe an OSHA certification that they need. So these are the 
gaps that we try to fill so that they can get these jobs and build the careers, enhance their careers in the clean energy industry. So when it comes to training, we work with employers to develop the technical skills of individuals currently in the clean energy industry. We provide them necessary training, offering them to the current employees and to the new hires. We also hired industry experts to teach candidates the skills and the competencies most needed by the New Jersey employers that supply energy efficiency services. And we also work to basically offer training to the entry-level resources as well so that they can upskill their skills and receive the certification and enhance their career. Additionally, we also have on-the-job training program, which is basically we call this OJT program which provides candidates with a living wage during their training period to ensure their financial stability while preparing for gainful employment. Well, that's a great incentive, for sure. Okay, so how did the project get off the ground? Was it a top-down initiative? Was it brought to management? Where did it begin? It was a combination of both. I would say the great leaders externally and internally supported this project. It was a grassroots approach where we basically listened to the needs of the community, especially when the pandemic started. We knew that people are losing their jobs. You know, we need to help our community give it back to it. So we started this initiative and there was a full support from our leadership and from our external leaders as well to start this project. And it has been doing great since then. So what are some of the challenges that you're finding in creating this diverse workforce? So creating a diverse workforce was definitely one of the challenges that we had, especially, again, because the program started during the pandemic time, hiring the females was one of the biggest challenges because at that time, most of the females were occupied or they were not able to come back to work because they had a child to take care of or an elderly to take care of at home. So we basically started giving, offering wraparound services, which is childcare. Or if they needed to commute from home to work, we would provide them transportation to reach to their work. So these are the services or some offerings that we provided to support the female hiring. Same thing additionally goes to like Hispanic and Latino and Black and African. Like we have different categories under diversity, which we measure their hiring of. So To tackle each one of these categories, we worked with different community partners who are closer to these communities to let them know that we have wraparound services. We have this program available, which you can take advantage of and can find jobs and build your career. So it's more like targeted outreach through our community partners. (laughs) A phrase we've been hearing a lot, meeting people where they are. That's exactly what you're doing. Yes. So that was one challenge. Another challenge was, even if we were hiring the diverse workforce, how do we prove that? And it goes back to how do we measure it? Because not everyone is comfortable sharing this information. Not everyone is comfortable sharing the demographics, where they come from. So part of the challenge was this. And then to overcome it, one of the approaches that we took was we basically let them know that we are not looking for the individual information. Provide us the information at aggregate level so that we can show that our program is doing what we promised without compromising their personal information or the data that they are not comfortable sharing with us. So one of the approaches that we took to target the female hires was to put the female's picture with the hard hat on our flyers, on our marketing materials, so that we can increase the number of females in the clean energy work or the, in the workforce. And we also created our flyers in like Spanish so that more people can read it. It's 
it's more readable for the people who are not used to of English. So these are the few ideas that we implemented, which helped hiring diverse workforce in the clean energy industry. And it's also an example of my next question, which is how are you communicating both internally and externally about the project? So clearly these marketing materials and flyers is one part of it. What else? Let's start externally. What else are you doing in that area? So, right. So we have the marketing material that we basically, we are attending so many events throughout the year, multiple events. We're going to colleges. We're going to these community events, speaking and talking about the program, educating everyone about the program that is available and publishing these materials everywhere. We also introduced our website, which is also available to public. So if you Google Clean Energy Jobs Program, it's one of the top hits in Google. So that's one of the ideas that we had implemented uh, to make it readily available. So additionally, we created our platform, which is a tool readily available to all New Jersey residents and outsiders as well, where they can log in, look at the jobs which are available in the industry. We have community partners who can log into this platform and refer the candidates that they are aware of to the particular job. And then our all of our vendors, like 30 plus vendors, have access to this platform as well, where they can come and look at the resources or the referrals and pick the right candidate for the job. So it's like a bundle where all the key stakeholders can communicate and link with each other and fill these positions. We also create different types of reports, which are published on a monthly basis. It goes to the BPU as well. So there are different types of you know, materials that are basically ha- we have been communicating internally and externally. And it shows that we this is our third award, national award we have won in this program. Oh, that's great. Well, congratulations on all three of them. And thank you. And now let's hear from Bambi Ingram. All right, Bambi, why don't you start by telling us about your winning project, the UAB Solar House and Sustainable Community? What are its objectives? First of all, the history of it is that we were a part of the Department of Energy Solar Decathlon competition in 2017. So that's how we got started on this. For the competition, we had to build a 100% solar-powered home, and we built it with a huge team of students and faculty and our facilities department, which is just extraordinary. We don't have a construction or architecture program on campus, and so our facilities craftsmen really, really essentially built this project. And we built it on campus, and then we had to test it and take it apart and take it to Denver, Colorado, which is a little over a thousand miles from Birmingham, Alabama, and put it back together again in a week. And we showed it to about 90,000 people in the competition there, and then took it apart again faster than (laughs) than we did to put it together. I got it on the road and brought it back to campus. And when we brought it back to campus, we thought, okay, how do we really intentionally use this project that we've put so much effort into, time, money, and dedication? And there isn't another solar demonstration site in the state. And we thought this, this should be open to the public. It's, it's a service to the campus and to the community. And so we made it not only 100% solar, but we really wanted to demonstrate resilience because that was one of our themes for the solar decathlon competition, because we are in a tornado location in Alabama. And the resilience factor, what's added is the fact that it is on a remote microgrid. And so it is not on the electrical grid at all. And it is something that 
very few people have seen in our community. And so they really want to understand how that works. And one of our chief goals is to demonstrate where do you get your electricity from? Most people don't think about that. And it's, it's something that we should all think about. You know, how does electricity work and where does it come from? And so that's a very basic demonstration of what we do when young people, people of all ages, tour the home. But I think I got sidetracked. And then overall, the rest of the project, because we do have gardens, we're cultivating habitat for monarch butterflies, and we have bees, and we have a rainwater collection system, and we have composting. So the overall project is, is if you're going to live the most sustainable life, how would you do it? Wow. So you mentioned a bunch of different initiatives, the microgrid, the rainwater collection system, the gardens. How are these strategies chosen for inclusion? Really about resiliency. We talk a lot about the fact because our microgrid is, and I'm using air quotes, remote. In remote places, that's where they are often used because people don't have access to the grid. But we treat ourselves as sort of an island. And so if you needed to live in a space and you wanted to live the most sustainable lifestyle that you could, every single thing we do takes in that into consideration. Wow. Can we talk about funding? I know that's a pain point for a lot of people. How are these projects funded? We've been very fortunate to receive a lot of local support. And then, of course, initially we were supported by the Department of Energy for, through the Solar Decathlon competition. And then we received funding from EBSCO, which is a local organization for us, local company. However, they have an international footprint. They just happened to be, they were formed in Birmingham, Alabama, founded there. And then we have individual donors and the University of Alabama at Birmingham is a major supporter. Our office is able to finance a lot of projects at the community. We also receive support from the AmeriCorps VISTA program. All of the people who run our solar house, who run the tours, who manage the entire facility, they are AmeriCorps VISTA volunteers. It's amazing you have such a robust financial support. In terms of other types of support, what else did you need in order to get the project launched? Man hours. <laughs> you know, it's really our team is dedicated to making this project a success. And you know, we will be starting a volunteer program soon because we get so many people who are really excited when they come to see the solar house. That they, How do I volunteer here? And so that's our next step, as well as working with local high schools to add to the intention of the neighborhood is that it will be a community solar project in an off-grid application. And so we will be adding to the neighborhood by adding some tiny homes to the footprint of the project. But yes. The university is an incredibly supportive organization. That's incredible. So you have an emphasis on students from the sixth grade through higher education getting involved, opening the solar house to the community. What have the reactions been from the people visiting? Most of the students who visit, young people especially, they've never seen a house with solar panels before. It's just not common where we are. And so they're fascinated about how that works often. We get visitors who we tell them as they enter the door that this is a 100% solar-powered project. And then people will point to the refrigerator and they'll say, so is the refrigerator solar-powered? Yes, it is. Is the oven solar-powered? Even the TV is solar-powered? 
And, and, and we have to go through that. Yes, 100% solar powered means that it's all powered by the solar on the rooftop of the solar house on the microgrid. That's incredible. It's like magic. <laughs> and how are you communicating it both internally and externally about this project? We use local news outlets. We have a great communication system on campus with e-newsletters to students and faculty and staff. We have a wonderful group of interns who do social media for us. And then our AmeriCorps Vistas go to meet with the Girl Scouts and they go out in the community and talk to churches and to gardening clubs and to other organizations. And that's how we bring people together. We also have events. Amazing. How does energy and sustainability fit into the university's operations? Where does the emphasis on DEI come in? We developed a sustainability strategic plan in 2019 with goals set through 2025. Diversity, equity, and impact uh, inclusion are, of course, an integral part of that. And our university has won multiple prizes for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And a number of our student groups that work with us are in the DE&I space and work for that office on campus. And so we just collaborate a great deal. Final question. What advice would you give to your peers in higher education in terms of reaching out both to the students and the wider community on DEI initiatives? It's just so important to communicate with everyone and to listen. People forget that that's a, that second part of communication is to listening to people about their cares and their concerns and talk to them about what they want to see for the future and the way that they want to live. And we do that every day by bringing people to our space and showing it to them and listening to their questions. And if we don't have an answer, then finding out the answer for them and taking care about their concerns. That's great. Well, congratulations on your incredible success. And we can't wait to see you continue expanding this project. Thanks so much. And now we'll hear from Ashif Hassan and Scott Gerba. So Ashif and Scott, can you tell us about the Colin Powell School of Civic and Global Leadership and your roles at the school? Yeah. You know, first off, thanks for having us. We're really excited to be here at the Net Zero Forum and to get recognized with the DEI Impact Award. We've been having lots of fun over the last couple of days getting to network with so many professionals across the industry. So it's been great. And congratulations on the event. And congratulations to you on winning the one of our DEI Impact Awards. Thank you. Appreciate it. So to answer your question, yes, yeah, so the Colin Powell School is the Social Sciences Division at the City College of New York, CCNY for short, which, fun fact, was founded as the first free public institution of higher education in the U.S. in 1847. And it includes all the social sciences departments. So economics, political science, psychology, sociology, so on. And it's the center of all the core leadership and public service programs at our school. We're named after the late General Colin Powell, CCNY alumnus, the first Black American to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and U.S. Secretary of State. And he was a really big advocate for clean energy solutions. We have 4,000 students and we're growing. Enrollment's basically up 13%, which is phenomenal. And our school's mission is combining education and the social sciences with values that advance leadership development and civic engagement. All of this is really in service to social mobility. For a student body, that's 80% people of color, half immigrants, and first in their families to go to college, and mostly from lower-income backgrounds. Amazing. What about you, Scott? Well, Maria, I would say, since you are a native New Yorker, you should come down and visit us. 
the energy level of a Colin Powell school is top notch. So I recently joined CCNY a little less than a year ago as their chief operating officer. And I look for areas of growth, areas of the opportunity investment. And you, you just don't have to look far to look at the Colin Powell School. Amazing. So your DEI Impact Award is in a special category, one to watch, because it's very new. It's a new initiative that you're working on. So can you tell us about the Colin Powell Bloom Energy Fellowship? Yeah, it is really new. Matter of fact, we launched it back in January. So this fellowship was drawn up in partnership with Bloom Energy. And our goal is to diversify the ranks of leaders in the clean energy industry and sustainability industries. So Bloom Energy is a leading manufacturer in fuel cell industry that's based in Silicon Valley. And the fellowship gives our students a chance to receive mentorship, professional development, and paid summer internships at Bloom Energy's headquarters. The first group was made up of 11 students. And we felt that the cohort model really helps them overcome the inevitable imposter syndrome, the feeling that you may not belong at the table or the space. That comes from working in an industry where leadership is, quite frankly, just super white and wealthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like an incredible initiative. How did it develop? Did it start at the school? Did it start at Bloom Energy? Whose idea was it? And how are you working together as partners? Yeah, so it actually came from K.R. Sridhar. He's the CEO of Bloom Energy, who we want to credit for being really devoted to diversifying these industries. So K.R. was mentored by General Powell, who served on Bloom Energy's board of directors. And really, it was his guidance and expertise that shaped the fellowship's mission. And he wanted to ensure that we build a strong foundation that's rooted in partnership and social impact. Amazing. How does this fit into CCNY's mandate for DEI? What is CCNY's mandate? And then how is this fellowship falling under it? Yeah. So CCNY is really committed to a policy of equal access in its educational programs and activities. So diversity, inclusion, and an environment from free from discrimination are central to our mission. So we start with the premise that the future needs globally minded leaders who are able to engage in rigorous and evidence-based debates. And we need trained people that are prepared to lead every sector and who can reimagine how we address our world's current challenges and inequities. Yeah, the fact that they're getting this real-world experience before they even leave school is so amazing. Yeah. You may not know this, but the City College of New York is probably the most diversified campus in the country. And so it's inherent in our bones, right? It's you know, some people talk about DEIs being a separate component, but it's part of our DNA. I mean, we have dozens and dozens of represented countries, dozens of languages on any given day. You can just walk down the block, you know, from language to courses to the food we serve. And so it's just, it, you know, kind of runs in our veins. And we have colleges from around the world visiting CCMY to learn how we've been successful in this model. So take an influx of Ukrainians into Poland. We've had the University of Warsaw come to our campus and talk to us about how do we educate such a diverse population? How do we connect with so many different types of walks of life, folks? And for us, it's kind of natural, right? We do it all day long, but there's so many other institutions that want to learn from how we do it. Right? So I think it's this is fascinating opportunity and we take it really seriously. Yeah, it sounds like CCNY is the perfect representation of New York in general. New York City has the melting pot that it is, that it's that perfect kind of representation. For the Bloom Energy employees who are providing the mentorship and professional development, how are you collaborating with the employees to structure this fellowship? Is there a training program for the trainers? How does it all work? 
Yeah. So this program is built on this collaborative effort between our school and Bloom Energy's talent recruitment team. And we work really closely together to engage with students on our campus to create a really effective application process and select candidates for the summer fellowship program. Once we pick our students, we had them attend professional development workshops, which both of our teams planned and brainstormed. And they were facilitated by CCNY faculty members during the spring semester. And we did this to enhance their skills and prepare them for a really successful internship experience. And we went over the basics that, quite frankly, we don't get to talk about enough in the classroom and aren't taught unless you come from a line of white-collar families. So email etiquette, learning how to communicate effectively, managing up and across, working on presentations, enhancing soft skills. Those are the areas that we focused on in the spring so that our students just felt a little more confident and a sense of belonging once they flew out to the West Coast. It's amazing. How, you know, you've talked about how people are coming to you to you're setting this leadership for this. How are you communicating both internally and externally about this project? Yeah, so externally, we're communicating to our partners about the impact of this model and convincing them that it works and we should replicate it. And we're inviting companies beyond just the energy sector to launch cohort models like this one and telling them that these make a difference, especially if we're saying that we want to make a concerted effort of lifting marginalized communities out of the lower class. So companies across the board have been contending with like how to diversify their workforce. And there are lots of answers. And we think this one is a really good one. Of the 11 that completed the internship program, a handful have already been asked to come back. We're actually close to 50% conversion rate which for full-time, which is phenomenal for our first year. So we know and they know that these students are just as capable and qualified as the places where, where Silicon Valley typically recruits from. 50% conversion rate. That's amazing. Yeah, I think, you know, we were talking earlier today about I've uh, been part of organizations where they strive for 30% and best in class is 80%. And, you know, I said to Chief, I said, you're your first year out, you're converting almost 50% into a new workforce opportunity for individuals. That's just phenomenal, right? In the first year. Yeah. And it's so, you know, you think of the, you know, we talk about it as, shepherding the process. But think of the student, right, who's looking for their first job, who doesn't have a lot of experience, who's getting flown out to a different part of the country. They're our biggest advocates. They're our biggest communication beacons, right? Because it's all word of mouth. And so for every one student, they know 10 students. And I think replicating that playbook at the student level So it's one thing to tap into alumni. It's a really different thing to tap into a student body because that's where the growth is going to come from. And so that's kind of how we think about multiplying this project and just, you know, growing it into something, you know, one this year it is 50%. Next year it might be 70% with double. And our partners are, we actually have to turn away partners. The amount of interest to support City College is actually overwhelming. And my biggest advice to the president is, you know, choose wisely, put your energy where it makes sense. And it's all about workforce placement. Mm. Yeah, but it sounds like those students who, you know, get asked back, the, the word of mouth from the students is going to be your best marketing asset. Yeah, my, you know, someone who's in their 20s, per se, do a much better job than someone as old as I am trying to communicate. They have the technology, they have the networks, and so we want to uh, capitalize on it. Amazing. Is there any crossover between this project and CCNY's energy and sustainability programs and initiatives? I was, you know, so the biggest crossover is one of the leading objectives that we're trying to do is train and develop the next generation for the American workforce. And so we have a series of initiatives. One in particular is called the Wrangle 
Infrastructure Workforce Initiative. It's specifically designed to train individuals for free in areas of energy, water, food, transportation. And so if you think about the work that Ashif's doing with Bloom Energy, it's exactly that, right? It's internships that produce workforce. And that's a measure of success. So when individuals want to work with us, it's one thing to educate people and sit in a classroom. It's a really different thing to work with your hands and actually then get a job, right? You know, we were just named the number one campus in the United States above schools like Harvard, Princeton, Yale for return on investment of your education. So you get educated at CCNY and then you go into the workforce right after that. And so we have initiatives like the Wrangell Institute, we have initiatives like Bloom Energy, and it's how it's designed to educate the next generation to have meaningful, high-paying jobs. And so rank number one across those big institutions is something we went number three last year, we've moved to number one this year, and it's a super great feeling, right? So we say, oh, we must be doing something right, let's keep doing what we're doing. Amazing, yeah, you're clearly leaders in this space, The one to watch, the Colin Powell Bloom Energy Fellowship. What advice do you have for other energy sustainability people who are looking to get started in adding DEI components to their operations in higher ed or elsewhere? Yeah. You know, in terms of recruitment and diversifying, I really think companies need to meet students where they are. And I want to give credit to companies that are already making investments in DEI efforts. But there's just still a lot more to do. Invest in professional development programs to support the growth of underrepresented groups start the trainings earlier, come to our campuses, you're going to realize that the model you might be using at Columbia or at UC might not be the best fit for every institution. And you're not going to know that unless you start to open yourself up to the idea of changing. And I would also suggest that you think outside the traditional paths for your analysts or entry-level roles. Don't just target the sophomores or juniors. Our seniors are also looking for internships. And by the time they figure out what they want to do, they realize that the ship sailed. And now they don't know where to go. So to summarize, you know, adapt your models, think about the impact that the cohort models could make, and then give me a call and work with CPS. I would say one person can make a difference. So my advice is don't group think, don't be a sheep in the herd, do educate yourself on the subject, do your homework. Things that are meaningful don't come easy, right? You have to kind of invest in yourself and surround your people with not only like-minded people, but also people who think differently than you, right? Because the atmosphere of debate is very rewarding, right? So part of DEI is being open to other ideas and being inclusive and agreeing to disagree, but understanding where people are coming from. So for me, it's really about get engaged. The hardest thing to do is start. And I tell all people, just put one foot in front of the other and you will start walking. And you guys are a testament to one foot in front of the other. You're in your first year. We congratulate you. And we're so excited to continue watching this fellowship grow. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. Thank you, Sandeep, Bambi, Ashif, and Scott. We look forward to following your work in this space. And we congratulate you again on your leadership. Thanks again to NRG for sponsoring the 2023 DEI Impact Awards. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for tuning into this podcast and being part of Smart Energy Decisions. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn about how you can become a part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, like the Net Zero Forum, 
Just click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to share these conversations with leaders of the energy transition in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.